You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. Uh, so, the Gospel of John, as we talked about the very first week, is a really strange uh, book. It's a strange story. There's four Gospels, four biographies about Jesus. John is seen as different than the other three. The other three are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is rather different. And John, uh, you, can, you can listen to it if you want online, so I won't go through it all. But, but John is a prophetic figure. He's an odd figure. He's on the margins of, of what, the other people, uh, what the other people are like. And so what John, the reason John writes this, it seems is that he wants to give you another perspective about who Jesus is, that he thinks that you don't naturally have probably, that you're not naturally thinking about. The other, the other stories about Jesus start with, with a rather uh, human-looking Jesus. It's about how Jesus was born in this place called Bethlehem, was, was raised by in, in kind of a precarious situation where his mother becomes pregnant through the Holy Spirit that is obviously not believed by his his father, uh, or not easily at least, and questioned by the people around him. And it starts with this really um, rather natural story about what's going on, the black and white of it. John starts totally differently, and I'll just remind you that the very first verse of John that we talked about the first week says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it continues, what we're doing today is 14 all the way down. But the beginning of the Gospel of John is, is a retelling. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but we talked about it already. The, the, very, the Bible itself in Genesis begins with in the beginning. So John's doing something very specific. And he's, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to tell you another creation story. I'm going to tell you, well, that's it for now. I'm going to tell you another creation story. So the, the verse that we're going to do today is 14. It goes like this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the beginning of the book, if you remember, it says in the beginning was the word. In in Greek, that's the word logos or logos. And it it means a word that encapsulates an idea. And even more than that, if you read Genesis... If you remember, God creates the world in this story through speaking words. He says, let there be light. And then it says, and there was light, and that was good. And so God has this, in, in Genesis, there's this creative energy that God has where he's speaking things out with words and they're coming into existence. And so John, John says that, to cut to the chase, that Jesus is actually that word. When, when God says, let there be light, is that somewhere in there, that's Jesus, the, the person that we know of is Jesus, that's him. So he says then in verse 14, after these 13 verses where he's explaining this, this new creation story and how, and how this, this, this word came and it came like a light and that light was not seen, it was not recognized by anybody. And then he comes to this part. The word, this word that we have known that existed for eternity in the mind of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I think what we're going to do today is we're just, there's only one verse, we're just going to reflect on it. I think it means more than anyone could say in 40 minutes. And uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word flesh is the word in Greek, sarx, which means human, a human person. But it also means, I'm a human person, but it also means how you would read the word flesh later on in scripture. Flesh is seen as like a negative thing. 
Jesus became like a human being in the, in the full weight of what that means, and he made his dwelling among us. So as I said, that the Gospel of John is like a telling of, of creation again. What he's saying is that, well, maybe as a reminder, Genesis, if you remember the story, we always talk about Genesis, but we can't not talk about it when we talk about the Gospel of John because it's in John's mind when he's writing. In the beginning, God created the world, and what happened was everything was good. Everything was in right relationship with each other. People were in right relationship with each other. People were in right relationship with God. People were in right relationship with the environment. And something went terribly wrong in which people began to mistrust God. They chose to mistrust God. And what that did, the story says, is it created separation between everything. Between people and each other, between people and God, between people and the environment, even between people within themselves. And so everything, that's how the Bible explains where we're at today. Why everything is the way it is. And so, another point. What happened at that time is heaven and earth became separated. This is the way the scriptures understand it. Uh, the way that you might hear Christians talk is that heaven is something out there and the earth is something here and at some point I'm going to die and I'm going to go to this place called heaven, which is only half right. In the, in the scriptures in Genesis, there is no, heaven and earth are intertwined like two realms that, in, that are inhabit each other. God creates the earth in, in heaven, if you can say that. All this is to mean is that, is that there was no separation between anything. Both realms were fully integrated. If earth is the realm of people, it was fully integrated with the realm where God's spirit resides. Now, when humans chose to mistrust, which breaks relationship, those things separated. And so now if you could say, though it's not even that clear, God lives in this place called heaven and people live on this place called earth. But God's desire is that those things come back together. That the earth become like heaven again, that it be invaded by heaven, which is what will happen, it says, at the end of time. What John's saying is that what people believed is that that would happen at some time when somebody came who would defeat enemies and bring it back together, or as, as really Jesus' opponents believe, that people live right, people live well enough, they live perfect lives, and then God will then say, okay, good enough, I'll bless you, and I'll bring the kingdom, or heaven. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven back to earth. What John's saying is that this, is that this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word, the eternal word, this thing that existed in heaven, this creative energy, became like earth. It came to earth. So what we have is that John's saying that when Jesus came, heaven and earth were coming back together again. And he made his dwelling among us. I want you to think about what a miracle this is. So next week we're going to see that John is not shy about saying that the Jesus who he knows is actually God in the flesh. It's God himself. But I want you to imagine for a second that it's true, whether you believe it or not. Imagine that it's true and think about the fact that he's saying the word, this, this phrase he keeps using, is God himself. And what a miracle this is. The scriptures say that God is all-knowing, that he knows everything, that he's not constrained by time, by space, he knows all, sees all. He is everywhere at all times. In the history of, in human history, God has seen everything that has ever happened. The good, the bad, the ugly. And we need to focus on bad for a second. God has been a witness to every murder that's taken place. He's seen every child that's been left behind. He's seen every war take place. He's seen the evil thoughts inside every human heart at every second of all time. He has seen 
the, the thoughts in my own mind, in my own heart that are dark. He's witnessed all of them. He's seen everything I've done and everything I've left undone. He's seen things that, I mean, if you're upset by the news, God has seen everything for all time. He hasn't missed a thing. At the same time, the scriptures say that God is righteous, that in him there is no darkness, there is no sin, there is no evil. He's pure love. He's good. So you can imagine what that's like for God for a second. This starts to make sense why God's angry. If you've been angry about injustice, imagine what God must feel. Because he sees injustice that, no, that some, maybe no one has ever really known about. The injustice that's in the human heart, the injustice that exists in places of great poverty and need today, the injustice that, that takes place in our society that never gets reported, that never shows up on your Facebook feed. Everything that happens, God has always seen it, knows it, and experiences it. And to him, mixed with love, often comes anger. So imagine that God has seen that. And even, even those kind of big things, God has seen the, the apathy of my heart. God has seen the, the, the fear or the sadness, the depression. He's seen people take their lives. He's seen everything. And then imagine that God's in his own realm. And the earth is, although there's beautiful things that take place, God has seen all the darkness. And so what a miracle it is that God would look there. And you might think that those things are personal to God because every human being that's doing these things, me and you and and all the rest of us are doing those things against God, whether we mean it or not, whether we think about it like that or not. They're all, the, the scriptures say that, you know, when we repent, we're repenting to God because everything I've done and left undone, what the Bible calls sin is a response to God himself is in reaction, rebellion to God. Every act of injustice is actually an injustice, not just to the person or the people, but to God himself, because God made all people. God made the earth. God made me. And so everything I do that's not within the way he made me is a rebellion against him. God sees all that, and instead of writing us off, he decides to actually become like that. I'm not really sure how to put this part into words, so I hope that you can just start feeling it and seeing it. Imagine for a second that that I was... I'm not sure what the right thing to say is. Somebody had done something awful to me, okay? Like that you could not believe and I wouldn't want to talk about. And that person was a type. They were of a certain race or a certain type that was hard for me to relate to anymore. And so for my life, I have tried to stay away from people that remind me of that person. And I struggle with even the idea of being near them or talking about them or because I'm so hurt. Now imagine that to God, that's human beings, whether they mean it or not. And so the miracle is that God is so full of mercy that for some reason, which in the story we don't really know yet, for some reason, God has chosen to become like the perpetrator. Okay. God has chosen to become like his own oppressor in a way. And that this is the miracle that John's saying is that God, we can say God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God did something that was unthinkable. Is that he became in the, in the form of people that had messed everything up and were continually messing everything up. And it says he made his dwelling among us. When, when Jesus did this, it, it's, it's amazing to think that The story John's telling is about the historical person, Jesus, whether we believe it or not. Jesus was born in in the beginning of the first century to uh, in the in the in an area called Galilee in the area of of near where kind of still is there there is a hotbed of 
uh, of violence in Palestine. And at the time that Jesus was born, there was an, there was other violence. He was he was born to a people that were oppressed and and ruled by the Roman Empire. And Jesus was born to a family that was, by all accounts, relatively poor, peasant-like. And Jesus grew up with a mother who was very young and misunderstood, and a, obviously, and a father who was a, what we'd think of as a day laborer. Jesus existed in relative obscurity for the majority of his life. Uh, he might have had some education in his local um, um, synagogue. But beyond that, he wasn't formally educated like a rabbi. He never wrote a book. He never became successful, really. Jesus, in fact, taught kind of unofficially for three years, gathered the people that nobody else wanted, taught them, performed miracles, and taught in a way that left people angry or freed. And then at the end of his life, he was arrested, he was tried, he was sentenced to death as a criminal, and then he was killed as a criminal by public execution and then buried in a tomb that someone else gave him because he didn't have one. And the story is three days later then, he rose from the dead by the accounts of many people. This is the story of the historical Jesus. What John says is, let me tell you that Jesus' story, that Jesus, was actually the creative mind of God himself. John's kind of odd. He's saying he's God. Jesus, that man that you knew that, that, that we killed was God himself, and, and his being born in our midst was actually God coming in the midst of us. What is that, first of all, just what does that say about God? What does it say that God would choose to come like this? It says that God's not interested in safety. You think about this? God's, what is a value to God? God does not find safety valuable. doesn't mean that he doesn't want you to be safe. But to God, for his own person, God is not interested in safety. He's not interested in security. He's not interested in protecting his life. God comes into a world where it, the scriptures say that everybody, whether they know it or not, is his enemy. In fact, it's pretty clear. I mean, he came and he lived 33 years, and it only took 33 years for him to be publicly executed. The world doesn't want God. We don't really want God, none of us. The word became flesh, and it made his dwelling among us. The word, uh, sorry, this is just reflections today, because I think this is the verse we're coming to. And I think there's something here for us, but... Um, the verse is what it is, so we're just going to reflect on it. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling, if, if you know, uh, there's Bible translations. One's called the message, and it says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh. It became like us, and it moved into the neighborhood. Or the literal word for dwelled among us means that Jesus tabernacled. That's not a good word, right? He tabernacled among us. Um, that's funny. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, he pitched his tent among us. The tabernacle, originally, was a tent that the Israelites would set up as they were traveling, which is where God would live, okay, to put it simply. What the Israelites believed is that, and, and it made sense, in a world that was God-forsaken, that God could not be found by anybody, the Israelites protected God's presence, that God would dwell in the world under certain conditions, which was a miracle in and of itself, and the Israelites were supposed to be the caretakers of that and to bless everybody, uh, later on, after the tabernacle, was the, the temple. And the temple is the place where God lived, and God could be accessed under certain terms there. Uh, this is obviously, in the Bible, not God's best desire. It's not the way he wants things. In fact, he created the world where there are no barriers between people and God. Everybody, no matter where you come from or who you are, can, can, can not only experience God, but have the Spirit of God living inside of them. 
But because of the way the world was, God in his grace and mercy said, I will still dwell among you under certain conditions. And so the tabernacle was that. So the word that, that John's using here is really intentional. He's saying that the word God, the eternal God, came into human form and he tabernacled. He, he pitched his tent in our neighborhood among us, lived among us. Um, why did Jesus, why did Jesus, why did God come as a man? These are all things that are so Christian, if I can say this. They're so Christian that we, I don't think we really feel it or get it. Let me just say this. God wanted to identify with people. He wanted to, you to understand that he understood what life was like for you. Which, to the person who's the most uh, in need of understanding that, God wanted to say, I understand what it's like. In fact, I'm not just blaming the human condition on human sin, although it's our fault. But I want to show you that I identify with what it's like to be a human being. I love you so much that I'm not going to dis- disregard you or throw you out or just incinerate you. I'm going to come and live among you and be like you. And I'm going to live a human existence like you do. Um, and so what does this say then about, about the tabernacle? What John is saying is that now what's going on is there is no... It's almost saying, okay, so Jesus himself, God himself has come. And any human person has pitched a tabernacle. Has pitched his tent among us. Meaning where people... And it's funny because the temple still exists at this time. Right, Jesus is, is somewhat close to the temple where people are still going to worship. And in Jesus' ministry, there's times where he's in the temple or around the temple or talking about the temple. But you understand what's happening is people are going in the temple daily to make sacrifice and to try to approach God. While God himself is walking in the temple <laughs> and he's walking around the temple and he's teaching and speaking with and willing to have relationship with people. So what John is saying is that that new creation, because in Genesis, God walks around with people. What he's saying is that the new creation has already come. This is why in the New Testament it says that the kingdom's coming, but it's already here. Jesus says both. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is coming and it's not here yet. In fact, he's saying that that whole idea that God can only be found in certain places at certain times under certain conditions is already gone. With Jesus coming, he says that now God can be accessed now, today, not even before Jesus uh, died and rose again to in a certain extent jesus was god was walking in the midst of everybody for how the world should be so god thinks apparently that even today in our world that god should be jesus should be tabernacling among us he should be in the world in the midst of it just like it jesus uh, if you know the concept of a missionary uh it's not that popular of a word maybe or an idea but the the the, the idea of missionary somebody who goes from, from one place, the place they're from, to another place to carry a message. The word missionary is actually not in the Bible anywhere. Uh, the word that is in the Bible that means missionary is apostle, which means sent one. It's somebody that's sent with a, with, a, with, a, with a purpose and a message to go to a certain place and deliver it. And that's where we use the term missionary. Jesus was the first missionary. You say this, Jesus is sent by God, self, however that works, to earth with this purpose. And what he did as a missionary was to become like the people around him, to take on the language, literally, the customs, the socioeconomic condition of the people, uh, the history of the people, the fears of the people, the understanding of the people. He related to them like one of them. You understand like how weird, if you start reflecting on this, how weird is that for God himself to come into a certain time and a certain place and humble himself to take on the brokenness, really, of the people? 
And then God said his good desire was to become like people, to empty himself of himself and become like people, and then to live among them. To John, we might not get this, but to John, this is a huge miracle. This is, if you think about this, if you reflect on it, if you receive it, this is a, this is a miracle beyond belief. So what it means, I think, for, for us is that Jesus identifies with wherever we're at. If you look at Jesus' life, I think the clearest person that Jesus identifies with is somebody who feels rejected. Jesus, and we saw it last week, maybe when Elena spoke, you heard it. Jesus is constantly rejected by people to the very end, and even today. When Jesus in himself and his message, if you look at it, uh, is, is good news, as we call it. We believe that the message of Jesus is positive and it's life-changing, even if you've heard people who claim the name of Jesus sound otherwise. It's, it's good and it's life-changing. Jesus came, and by coming, he identifies with everybody who's rejected. Because of that as well, I think Jesus, the invitation just for this one verse is to say, how has Jesus become, how has God become flesh in your life? Make it really practical. How has he revealed himself to you? And how is he dwelling near you? Because he is, and he always is. How is that the case? How has he become like you and identified with you for you to receive? If, if you don't know, Jesus will do that. I know, and this is how practical it can get. God wants you to have a relationship with him, and he will do whatever it takes in his own way for that to happen. And usually he will come to you in a way and in language that you can understand at the right moment that you need it and can understand it and can receive it. And so what that usually means is that somebody will come into your life who knows Jesus and begins to make that take on flesh for you, to be able to speak it into your life in words that you can get and understand. So for me, I was a teenager, and somebody came into my life, and I thought I had it all figured out, what Christianity was, and I wasn't interested. And for some reason, the message they spoke to me, although intellectually I was still wrestling with it, the grace, the message of grace that I could be forgiven and accepted, no matter what, was too good to be true for me, and so I just kind of signed up and worked the rest out later. But it was that person in my life that ended up becoming this kind of word, this kind of idea made flesh. The word is a word. Imagine what John's saying here, is that Jesus is, God is not actually far away, and that all ideas about God and beliefs about God, God wants them to be fleshed out in a way that people can understand and receive. God wants his presence to be practical and literal and in your midst so that you can know him and see him, and he's relevant to every day of your life. So when God said, I want to heal the earth, I want to heal my relationship with people, I'm going to come in the form that people can understand, I'm going to walk among them, and I'm going to begin to then recreate the world. So when Jesus walked around and he saw somebody that was sick, he just healed them. Because in the, heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, nobody is ill or has problems. In the same way, even more important, I think, really, Jesus spoke messages. He preached things, and what he was doing even in preaching words think about this. As Jesus was speaking forth words, life was coming back into existence again. To the people who heard it were literally coming back to life or feeling life for the first time. Uh, this is why that people who weren't, that weren't uh, receiving the benefits of life, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners that he's with, these are the people that receive what he's saying because they're hungry for life. So if you just look, Jesus' life, what John's saying is, what's everything that's coming after this in the Gospel of John that we're not going to look at right now, is all Jesus recreating the world step by step by step, moment by moment by moment, word by word by word, that then in some, at some time will be complete. Because as we know right now, it's not complete. 
What it also means, though, is, so, is that you should receive Jesus. I think that's the simple thing, is that you should wrestle with him. If you, if you, if you believe or you don't believe, and I think there's, the line is very fine. You call yourself a Christian, you don't. It depends on where you're at on a certain day, probably, what your faith is like. So wherever you're coming from, God's desire is that he would incarnate, we'll talk about that in a minute, incarnate the good news for you, incarnate his presence for you, come to know him. So what that means is, Look for where he's active in your life. Look at where it's already at. And then if you're not sure, ask him. Ask him to, to make it plain, make it clear, show yourself to me. So if you're wrestling with a relationship with God, that would be my advice. You pray, which can be scary in and of itself, but just speak words out into, even if you don't have much faith. Say, God, reveal yourself to me then. If you revealed yourself to people so that they could understand you and receive you, then reveal yourself to me like that. The other way is that as disciples of Jesus, this is what we call ourselves, we are uh, students of Jesus. We learn from Jesus. This is, if you follow Jesus, this is what it means. And maybe this is a bit simple today. You become like him. You learn from him and you become like him. And so what this teaches us about what it means to be a disciple is that every single person who follows Jesus is invited to take your faith that lives in your head and, and let it take on flesh and live it out. We're actually, that idea of missionaries, we're all actually called to be missionaries, okay? This is what the, the scriptures call us to do because we're called to be like Jesus. Everybody's empowered, even if you don't think you are, and you're able to do this. And even if you don't believe in Jesus today, it's funny because the Bible's calling for you is that you be a missionary, even if you don't believe yet. Uh, and that we were made for this kind of extremely intentional, purposeful life with a mission beyond what we could imagine, that 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 overwhelms and extends beyond our family life and our work and our education and our fears and our language. And it, 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 it's bigger than all of that. And it includes all of that. And so what that would mean then, if you want to take it seriously to be a follower of Jesus is then you would ask God that your faith would take on flesh and you would live it out among people. And then who would you live it out on? Well, if you want to learn from Jesus, Jesus went to people of great social, who had great social and spiritual need people who were poor and oppressed and people who were underrepresented by the good news. They didn't think that God was good news for them and the message of Jesus was for them, so Jesus went to them. And so it's the same way for us is that we're invited as followers of Jesus then not to just receive that God became flesh for me, but then to follow in Jesus' footsteps and say, God, where do you want me to go? Because there's places in our city, in our neighborhood, there's people at your workplace, there's people, your neighbors, there's people in your family, there's people in this room. There's people who God is desiring that the good news would be incarnated to them. The word incarnate means to put on flesh, to embody, to make plain, to make clear, to take an idea and to live it out in front of somebody so that it's tangible and they can accept it. That's an invitation to everybody. God's just waiting for people to wake up and say, Beyond my work, even though it can be at your workplace. Beyond my family, even though it is it's your family and it's with your family. Beyond everything. Father, I want to live like that. And so what can happen is, and you can find a group of people. This is going to get pretty practical, I guess. You can find a group of people and you can say, you know what? I'm going to, the place where I live right now, and many of us do this. The place where I live right now, this is where I should incarnate the gospel. Because people, if you haven't noticed, people don't always receive well when you just talk about God. But if you talk about God like the word, and then you, be, you let it take on flesh. You live it out in front of them. You don't talk about forgiveness. You forgive them. You do both, really. You don't just talk about Jesus, but you, you, you live a life in relationship with Jesus where you become like Jesus so that they don't believe you, but they believe what they're seeing. 
This is the way it was always meant to be anyway. It wasn't meant to be like shouting on a street corner. It was meant to be you embody that message. You speak it and you live it out, not because you're striving, because you're becoming like it. And so the invitation is the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us is that now, like we're getting ahead of ourselves now, but now the invitation is to receive that for yourself and then that Jesus is pretty much a genius because his idea was that he's going to take 12 people and he's going to train them to do this. He's going he's to embody them and fill them with his presence. And then he's going to say, keep doing that. And he's going to, instead of just Jesus being a rock star and walking around and teaching, he just fills the earth with his presence, fills the earth with people who will do exactly the same thing at all times and all places with Jesus' spirit in them. It's not really you. It's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus inside you, living it out. And so I would be really practical today. You think, what can you do? How can you do it? Where can you go? Maybe, maybe you should move somewhere else. I hope not. Maybe you should move somewhere else in the city, though. I don't know. That's even better. Uh, but maybe you should. Or maybe where you live is the place. Or maybe it's not where you live. Maybe it's the people you know. Or maybe there's a people, a group of people who maybe you don't even come from their culture or their language, but for some reason, God always brings them to mind and brings them to heart. Well, you know what Jesus would do is he would learn their language. He would go to them. He would live among them. He would become like them. He would learn from them. This is what Jesus did. How humble is that? And he lived among them for 30 years, and then he started speaking to them. This is, this is what Jesus is doing that he invites us to do. It doesn't have to be 30 years for you. I hope you don't have to wait 30 years to, to see something, but you might. But to do that, and you're free to do that, what could you do? Where could you go? And you should do it with other people. The end of this verse, John says this. So he says this whole thing. He says, we have seen the glory of this word, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Um, John's doing something specific here. Remember, he's, he's, talking, he's referring to a human person, historical person that everybody was aware of. He's speaking in this really eternal language, and he says, we saw the word, it became a human being, it lived among us in our presence, and we saw his glory. And so what I asked myself was, what did John see? This is just kind of like writing nice words. What did he, when did he see Jesus' glory? Because what was he looking at? What was he seeing? And so you imagine, what did John see in relationship with Jesus? Is he saw, he saw the glory, he saw Jesus uh, teach. He saw Jesus eat. He saw Jesus pray. He saw Jesus get angry and cry. He saw Jesus uh, heal people. He saw Jesus uh, speak to skeptics. He saw Jesus comfort people who were oppressed and in great need. He saw Jesus probably with things that aren't recorded, just talk, sleep, you know, travel around. This is what John was seeing. And what John says is, remember, we were all there the whole time. And what we saw was we saw his glory. Like, what's he talking about? That for some reason in the, in the concrete lived out, Jesus' concrete lived out existence and what he did, John says, I saw his glory. Glory is the word doxa in, in Greek. And what it means to these people is it means we saw his weightiness, his essence. Glory is a hard word to talk about. But what it means is if you took the personality of God, all of it, all of his character and, and his personality and his, his identity. You took God's identity that's really heavy, it's huge, it's all-encompassing, and when, it, when, it's, when you see it, it starts filling everything in the scriptures. He says, we saw Jesus' glory, his identity, his true identity and his true essence, all of his, there's another word here, but I can't find it yet. It's a substance, yeah, there's another one. 
Anyway, you get the idea, because no one can explain glory anyway. Uh, we saw his glory, and the glo- he says, the glory of the one and only Son. It, it, the, the word here is begotten or unique. We saw, I, we saw him live, this rabbi live, and we saw his glory, his, his true identity, his essence. And we saw it as he was the only unique son who came from the Father. So what John is saying is a radical claim. He's saying that Father is who people refer to as God. You might refer to him as a force or a spirit, or you might refer to him as non-existent. But John refers to him as Father. And he says, Jesus, we saw his glory it was the glory of like the only unique son of God. Uh, you, you've heard it said maybe that when you have a child, and I've said this before, that it's like the child is the glory of the parents. Okay? The, the, the child reflects the glory of the parents. The child reflects the DNA of the parents, the image of the parents, the personality often of the parents. What he's saying here is that we saw Jesus. We saw this man, and he reflected like a son the glory, the essence, the identity of God perfectly. The reason that matters is all the way back to Genesis again. What John is thinking about is that when God made human beings, he made them in his image to reflect his glory and reflect his image. That became broken. And what he's saying is Jesus is actually not just God come in the flesh, but he's God's example of what a human being was made to look like and be like. So you see, when you look at Jesus's life and you see the beauty of it, you see the simplicity of it and the beauty of it. You see that Jesus lived without fear. He lived in constant communion with God. He, was, he, he lived in constantly making decisions out of love. He, he, he was able to be near people. Imagine this. He was able to be near people who needed him, who it might have been uncomfortable to be near, even while he was judged by self-righteous people about being near them. And John says when he saw that, it's like he saw the character and identity of God lived out in front of him. He said, that's what God's like. God's not, God's not some, just somebody that's high up, that's detached, that's judgmental. God is somebody, his heart is somebody who lives among those who are hurting and who know they need him. And he says, I saw the identity of God lived out in Jesus because he's the only person that reflects God. So to John, it's not in people that in our world, we think people compete against Jesus, different religious ideas. It's not about that. John says it's about the fact that everybody I've seen, even though there's truth in what many people say, nobody has reflected the character and life of God like Jesus. I see it, that it's like his glory is being reflected off Jesus. That's why I know he's a unique son of God. No one's like him, who came from the Father, and then he says this, full of grace and truth. And I thought, that's a weird way to end that. Of all things, because this may be what I was thinking, God's glory is his grace and his truth. God's glory is his love. God's glory is his power. God's glory is all of his attributes, that's the word, summed up together and expressed. But John says, I saw Jesus and I saw the glory of God in him because I saw the grace and the truth of God filled with it. Grace and truth are often, I think we find them as, as competing forces. Grace is, 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 we've called it unmerited favor, but it's really just God's desire to have favor towards somebody, to bless somebody, that just can't be stopped. Just for whatever reason, he is loving kindness. He wants to bless you and be near you and draw near to you. That's what God's like. He's filled with grace. His truth, it just means truth. It just means, the, the, it, it means reality as opposed to non-reality. But what he's saying is that I saw in Jesus' life these two things that often compete, and they do compete with us, right? If I'm much better at grace than truth, normally. Some people are much better at truth than grace. 
But the glory of God, the essence of God, is seen in this marriage of grace and truth. What this looks like is that when I come to Matt and I say, Matt, what God would say to Matt, because I'm not a really good example, is you, you know it's him because he, he, Jesus comes near you and he says, with, with, this, with this full acceptance that you can't explain, this love that you can't explain, this acceptance no matter what, but also at the very same time, in the very same way, intertwined with that, this truth that just tells you how things are. An example of this is in the, in the Gospels, there's the story, uh, you probably know it, where uh, a woman who was caught in adultery comes and is brought by self-righteous people and condemned on the spot in front of Jesus to say this woman committed adultery. We caught her. And so the, the Torah says you should put her to death. What do you say, Jesus? Because they think Jesus is too nice. He's too graceful. So when he's so filled with grace, he's always forgiving people. When he says, forget it, you know, I'm not going to do anything. They're going to say, ha, we don't have to listen to you anymore because you don't follow the Torah. You don't actually believe in truth. What Jesus ends up doing in this story, though, is he, he bends down and he draws something in the dirt. And uh, then he says to them, let, if you remember, let, the, let, the, let whoever's here who has never sinned, this is a paraphrase, let you, they want a stoner to kill her, let, you'll, you'll throw the first stone, and that's how we'll start. So whoever's free of sin, you start, and then we'll all continue. And everybody kind of looks at each other like, they're probably upset, but obviously nobody's free of sin. And the, 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 the thing Jesus is saying is that in that moment, okay, and then what happens after, they all leave one by one by one by one. And then it's just Jesus and the woman standing there. And what he says to the woman is something, something, go and sin no more. This is how you should read the Bible. Go and sin no more. So what you have is this marriage, a really easy example of this marriage between grace and truth. The woman is not just kind of like, oh, your life is fine. Just do whatever you want. But she's so fully accepted that in that moment she can probably receive the truth of her life that she already knows anyway, that it's deeply broken. And so Jesus lives this kind of truth of God that, that says things how they are, that says the truth. And it also comes from this place filled with grace. It's not this, by the way. It's not, I'm going to tell Matt the truth that I want to tell him, and I'm going to say it nicely. That's not grace and truth. Grace and truth is something that comes from God, and it's this, it's this ability to inhabit these worlds of complete acceptance and complete saying it like it is at the same time. Because it's for his good. Or for my good. And by the way, you can only do that as a human being if you want to be a disciple of Jesus and speak in grace and truth, is if you receive that yourself. You receive truth yourself. You receive grace yourself. Uh, You guys can come forward. We're going to just end here. So the, this whole thing is called is what some people have called the incarnation, like I said earlier. And the incarnation is an invitation today, an, an actual literal invitation to receive Jesus again, to receive that God has made himself known to you, and at the same time to take on a life of incarnation, to say, God, how can you incarnate your presence, your love, your truth, your grace through me in very practical ways? How can I, Jesus said at the, in, in the Gospel of John later, he said, as, as the Father has sent me here, so I send you. In the very same way. Imagine that, in the very same way. So in the very same way that God sent Jesus, he sent me to live a life that's like Jesus. Not in my own strength, not in striving, but to live a life that I empty of myself and I fill it up with, with, with wherever God's calling me. Paul himself said, 
that he, he desired, he so desired that people would come into a relationship with God. Not the messed up Christianity that some of us have known, but a true, authentic, beautiful relationship with God. I so badly want that for people that I will become all things to all people, he said. Can you imagine that? What's the goal for your life? Uh, the goal for my life is that, you know, like, why do you live in the place you do? Why do you do what you do? It's because my heart is so broken for these people that I've given my life to become like them, that I might share this, that this message might begin to make sense for them. So he says, I, as, as the Father has sent me, so I send you the same way. It's not an invitation for people who don't want it, by the way. It's only an invitation for people who want that kind of life. Jesus never forces people to do anything, even accept him. It's an invitation to say, if you like how that sounds, if you want that, if you want a relationship with God that's authentic, if that's you, in your own, in your own strength and power, you choose that. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The love which Jesus incarnated, by which we are saved, is to become the love which fills us beyond capacity and flows out to heal the world, so that the word may become flesh once more and dwell not just among us, around us, but within us. Having beheld his glory, we must then reveal his glory. Glory is of the beloved children of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.